Well, arrivals are rarely uh, value neutral. And what I mean by that is, for instance, we're in a season of the year where many of us will either be traveling to go visit family or family will be traveling to come visit us. And at the end of that travel, you will eventually arrive. We will arrive or, or they will arrive. And depending, of course, on your relationship with those particular family members, that will either be a wonderful thing or potentially an annoying thing or maybe even for some of you a fairly painful thing. Uh, maybe your relations in the family, maybe you're like Buddy the Elf and almost everyone's happy to see you. Uh, or maybe you're more like Cousin Eddie from Christmas Vacation and your presence is both uh, a surprise and maybe a little bit, uh, brings a little bit of chagrin to the whole family. But arrivals always deliver or drive responses. I mean, Christmas is coming. That, that very idea, you know, the idea that there's just 13 days left until Christmas. I mean, for the children, that's probably awesome news. 13 more days, and you get to open presents. For me, that's terrible news, because I haven't done much shopping, and it sounds a lot more like a threat than it does any sort of promise, the fact that Christmas is coming. You know, you know how it is. Dad is home. Well, that's good news if you've been waiting for Dad to eat dinner or, you know, you guys are all going to watch a movie together. It's bad news if you've been misbehaving all day and Mom is ready to give the report. You know, it all depends on the relationship, the expectation, what's been going on, what you've been uh, either doing or not doing as to what an arrival of someone may mean. Of course, this time of year you've probably heard already uh, the most famous of Christmas songs, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. And you know how it is. He is coming to town. He's got this list that he checks multiple times for some reason. And he is going to find out everybody's behavior and then reward or punish based on that behavior. He is going to know what you've been doing. And depending on your performance, you're either going to have a really wonderful Christmas or a terrible one. And that's how it is even in general. Arrivals always come preloaded with meaning and expe expectation, and they always generate responses. Well, our text today is all about the arrival, arrival of God. I mean, God is coming through the whole book of Zephaniah. And while we sing this time of year, you know, joy to the world, the Lord is come, or the most famous of Advent hymns, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to you, O Israel. That is not the disposition of the people, according to the prophet uh, of Zephaniah. That the, the idea that joy and rejoicing would be uh, their disposition is not what he's advertising concerning the fact that God is about to arrive in their midst. He's been warning the people uh, for three chapters about just how dreadful it is going to be when God comes among them. From the start, God has said... I'm coming to you, and my goal in coming is the undoing of everyone and everything because of how my people have responded to me. He begins in the very first chapter, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. And then he goes through all the levels of the earth, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and human beings and beasts that live on the land. He says, I'm going to destroy it all. I'm not going to leave anything in its place. That language, the language of creation that we learn in Genesis 1 and 2, but here, of course, it's creation being undone, much like the flood of Noah. The whole book 
is this testimony of God and his march against the whole world. I mean, he begins with the Canaanites and moves to the Philistines, then he goes over to Moab and uh, crushes the Ammonites and the Cushites, and finally he's on the doorstep of the Holy Land itself. And instead of being there in this pleasant sort of your God has arrived, he then begins to list out the judgments against Israel because of how they have responded to him as their husband and their God. They have been unfaithful. And in their unfaithfulness, they've been unrepentant to a God who has done nothing but keep his promises concerning them. But she pays him no mind. And when she does, she feigns a certain sort of reverence and concern, but then she goes off and worships other gods. Chapter 3 begins, this chapter that we're in this morning, with God giving these judgments against his people before he gives his punishments. He says she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust. She does not draw near. And so God says, I'm going to draw near. And then he says, just wait. I'm coming. And listen to these verses. He says, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For on that day I will pour out my indignation and all my burning anger, the fire of my jealousy, and all the earth will be consumed. God says, uh, just wait for me. I'm coming. And of course, this arrival is loaded down with meaning. And none of it is good. Uh, It's like, you know, the bully saying, wait for me after school, you know, I'll meet you at the bike rack. God is not saying, you know, wait for me, good things are coming your way, but wait, it's going to be a dreadful day when I arrive. He even tells them how they should react in verse 7 of this chapter, he says, uh, of chapter 1, he says, be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is at hand. He says, when I come, it would be best if you didn't talk, it'll probably just make it worse for you. That the relationship has been so severed and so damaged that God is coming and his arrival is not a joyful scene. But strangely, into this scene of sin and the horror of judgments that come from that, we have a text that we read this morning that's so full of joy and festivity You know, it's full of chatter and laughter and the raucous sounds of a party. There's all these commands and these uh, 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 um, uh, expectations of shouting and, and exulting and rejoicing. And it just doesn't seem to fit the rest of the book. I mean, how do you go from these dire warnings of judgment to a call... To party uh, and to rejoice and to you know make as much noise as you can in exaltation of God. This text has news so good in it that if you get it, you can't help but rejoice. And that's what I pray that God would help us to grasp this morning, even just a bit in the time that we have. So the first thing I want us to see is Advent's call to celebrate. Advent's call to celebrate. You'll notice our text begins in verse 14 with four commands to rejoice. Sing, shout, exult, rejoice. He stacks up these words that all call for the same thing, this kind of whole-souled celebration of something. These words are all very similar in semantic range. 
And they all call for verbal expressions that are letting out a joy that cannot be repressed. And in particular, some of these words, two of them in particular, come uh, oftentimes in Scripture after some sort of triumph, that something has happened that is so good that you can't help but make verbal acclamation about it. So, you know, a lot of times this comes, uh, you know, shouts of victory after war or a triumph uh, 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 shout. You know, you've been fighting this long battle and finally you realize you're winning and the, the victory is declared and now you get to go home and be with your family. That kind of celebration. If you've ever been involved in sports uh, or even just as a, 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 a fan of sports, you, you know this feeling, you know. If you've got a team that you really love and, you know, they're in the World Series and it's two outs, uh, bottom of the ninth, two strikes, you guys are up by one run, and the final out is made, finally you can breathe that sigh of relief and really celebrate what you had anticipated was coming. It's that time of exhale and release. The kind of celebration that comes after the reading of a verdict or the winning of a war or the, you know, uh, 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 the birth of a child. It's that sort of language. Notice what he says, even in verse 14, do this with all of your heart. This is a joy that is not supposed to be subdued. This is not, you know, quiet and dignified Presbyterian joy. Uh, you know, it's like the kind of joy you see at a college football game, that uh, undignified, completely uh, unmitigated, uh, you know, uh, loud and raucous sort of celebration. The words used here remind us of even David before the ark, where he celebrated without reservation, the return of the Ark of the Covenant to the people of God, and his, his celebration was so undignified that his wife was utterly ashamed of it. And just, you know, kind of, you know, uh, dressed him down for it, saying, you know, don't, don't act like that. And David's response was like, oh, it's going to get a whole lot more undignified than this. It's the kind of joy where you don't mind acting a fool. And in one sense, you have to. Because... What has taken place is just so good you can't help but celebrate. Well, how in the world does that call for joy in verse 14 fit into the context of a book that has been saying for three chapters, like, God's coming and you better brace yourself. I mean, how do you turn that sharply in the midst of a problem? I mean, it's such a sharp turn that a lot of commentators say, this couldn't possibly be written by Zephaniah. This, someone else, some editor took this and just slapped it into the book because it just doesn't fit in the context of a book that is so negative concerning the actions of God's people. We've gone from the commands of chapter 1 where he says, I'm coming, you better shut your mouth to four consecutive commands of rejoicing. And it tells us why they're supposed to rejoice. Look at it twice, it says, because God is in your midst. Six times in chapter 3 alone, twice in our very text, he says they should rejoice because God has arrived, which is the odd part. That was the whole reason they were supposed to be afraid the whole book was God was coming. And when he comes, that's not good news. We have stayed. You notice that God has already chastised them. He says, you know, you have stayed away from me. You have not drawn near to me because you wanted your own desires. You chased the things that you loved, other gods and wealth and so forth. And because you 
wanted what you wanted, you stayed far away, and now that I have seen it, I'm coming near, and you don't want anything to do with me because you're afraid. So how in the world do we get to this kind of joy from that kind of reality? Well, the second thing we want to see is Advent's cause for celebration. I mean, why are we invited into this hallelujah chorus in chapter 3? Well, yes, it's because God arrives, but look at how he arrives in verse 15. God is with us first as a king, and he says, Because I'm the king, never again will you fear any harm coming to you. And then again in verse 17, he says, God is with you to save. He's a mighty warrior or a Joshua to come and fight on your behalf. And because of that, look at what verse 16 says. Do not fear. You don't need to fear because God is coming as your king and God is coming as your savior. And because of those things, the proper response is confidence. And look at his work. He says, your judgments are gone because I'm coming. Your enemies are gone. The whole book has been about God's coming judgments and God using their enemies to meet out his judgments on his people. I mean, Assyria has already come and destroyed their brethren to the north. Babylon is on uh, the march to come get them right now. I mean, their future is pretty dismal. And God is saying, I'm using those nations to meet out my judgment. And God says, now you don't need to fear at all because your judgments are gone. And your enemies are gone. And he says, it's all because I've issued a pardon for you. I've commuted your whole sentence. Therefore, judgment's removed, shame is removed, your enemies are removed. All the things that would have kept us from approaching God, all the things that would make us fear if God approached us, God says, I've taken all of those things out of the way. And how did he do it? I mean, this is the part of the the text that really should stand out to us. All the first-person singular verbs God proclaims concerning what he's doing. Look at verses 19 and 20. Uh, First 15 and 16, I will remove, I will deal. 19 and 20, I will save, I will gather, I will change, I will bring you home, I will gather you together, I will make you renowned, I will restore your fortunes. Notice, we're called four times, we're commanded. You must rejoice. And then we're given the reasons. Here's the cause. You rejoice because God has done everything. The reason to rejoice, you will notice, is not based on anything Israel has done at all. Not one thing in here is about how they finally got it right. Or they finally repented wholeheartedly. They finally turned to the Lord with all... God says, I'm going to cause that to happen, but it's not because you did that. I'm going to make that happen. I'm going to restore all your fortunes. The only reason they're given to rejoice has nothing to do with their efforts or their internal change or some formula that finally turned everything around, but simply because God did it. And he did it all from the top to the bottom. I mean, we caused the mess. And then he causes all of the rejoicing by undoing it by his own labor. And if we were to ask the question, what do we need for Christmas? This text text answers it. Um, And it reminded me, as I was uh, studying this week, I went to a local coffee shop by my house. And on the coffee shop wall, there was this employee purpose statement. And they were saying, you know, every employee should put, what's your purpose? Why are you here? And what do you want to give to this place of employment. 
And I thought some of the answers were amazing, but one in particular stood out. One, you know, ensure all customers and partners leave happy. Uh, my goal is to spread positivity, all very nice. Uh, to be the partner that every other worker and customer can depend on, very good. To spread sunshine on everyone's day, uh, just wonderful. But my favorite one was, what is your purpose? To reinvent myself. What I liked about it was just how honest it was. I mean, what's your goal in working here? And the answer is to be somehow a completely different person than I am right now. To somehow not be at all who I am and just reinvent myself wholly in this particular position. And if we were to ask the question, what do we need for Christmas? That really is the answer. And we know that because look what God gave us for Christmas. He gave us a son in our stead, and then he does all of these things on our behalf. If God was to come and say, you know, what do you need? Our answer should be like, well, we just need to be totally different than we are. Uh, and so for but thousands of years, that just hasn't happened. We need something from the outside to change what we have been, uh, what we are presently, and what we always have been. This has been Israel's and our problem from the beginning. I mean, the only way out of this mess, the only way to be pleasing to God is if somehow we were just completely different than we are. <laughs> if we could just reinvent ourselves. But because we can't do that, God stepped in and He did it. He didn't wait for our change or even our willingness and best intentions. He came to us, not just when we were sick and needy, but he came to us when we were feisty and resistant and arrogant and not even asking for or wanting any help. And he stooped down to us in our need by putting on human flesh and he was born a son of David, a king in a cattle stall. And the shame he bore didn't stop there. It wasn't just that God of all creation put on creation and was born into meager circumstances. That wasn't the end of his humility. That was just the beginning of his humiliation. Because he became also a warrior king in order to save. Just like the text says, he's a king and a savior. And we will call his name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. He does come to defeat our enemies, even the enemy of ourselves. He comes to reckon with us as the problem by dying for us on the cross, taking the humiliation of the incarnation all the way to its final, most devastating fruits. By being hung on a tree, he became what he was not to do what we could not do. One author writes, The world is by no means averse to religion. In fact, it is devoted to it with a passion. It will buy any recipe for salvation as long as that formula leaves the responsibility for cooking up salvation firmly in human hands. The world is drowning in religion, but it is scared out of its wits by any mention of grace. A grace that takes the whole world home, gratis. He goes on to say, this is our prayer oftentimes, Lord, please restore us the comfort of merit and demerit. 
Show us that there's at least something we can do. Tell us that at the end of the day, there will at least be one redeeming card of our very own. Lord, if it's not too much to ask, send us to bed with a few shreds of self-respect upon which we can congratulate ourselves. But whatever you do, do not preach grace. Give us something to do, anything, but spare us the indignity of this indiscriminate acceptance. But that's what you get in the book of Zephaniah. A God putting against us all the charges, and with those charges, the punishments that we deserve, and then stepping in himself and saying, I'm coming as a warrior king and I'm going to do it all. All your shame will be removed. All your judgments will be removed. I will take care of everything. And it's all of grace from first to last. Apart from willing or doing even on our end. And if you can believe that, you can rejoice in it. You can rejoice because all fear is removed because everything that needs to be done has been done. What do you fear? I mean, what is it that you're really afraid of? Or, you know, is it the economy, the government, your sins, your future? I mean, all these things that seep in and cause us concern. I mean, what does your family and community hear from you about this God, this God who is with you? What do they hear about Him by what you say and what kind of concerns come out of your mouth? Do they think He's one? Or that somehow your salvation is still in limbo and your future is uncertain? Do they believe that your enemies are defeated and that your judgment's taken? And if you believe that, then where is the rejoicing? And that's the call of the text, right? If God has done all of these things, the only appropriate response, the only thing to be done, notice he doesn't say, so, you know, dust yourself off and get back to work. He just says, celebrate the fact that it's done. That's your call. So much what we're commanded to do that he repeats the commandment four times over. For many of us, we don't rejoice because it's hard for us to believe that it's really done. That God really considers us in this fashion. It's hard to believe that God is for us. And even those of us who do believe it, it's hard for us to believe it this fully. That there really is nothing left in our lives that God looks at and is disappointed But I want you to see, and I wonder if you do see, how complete, and gracious, how complete the work is and how gracious God really is and how much He genuinely loves His people. If you see how big His love actually is, I think it would be almost too much to bear, but it's here in the text if you look at it. So our final point this morning is Advent's chief celebrant. Notice what he says in verse 17. God delights over you. God has quieted over you in love. Where formerly there was all of this roaring wrath approaching, God is the one quieted. I know our text says, you know, he will quiet you, but it, it, God is the one being quieted, that he's, he's contented with the one that he loves. There's nothing left to be done. He's perfectly satisfied with the one that he's with. And notice he sings over you. I mean, consider what is happening here. We've been commanded four times to rejoice, 
to lose restraint, to celebrate the goodness of God. But the same verbs are used here concerning how God responds over His people when He finally arrives and gets to be with them. The undignified dance that David did before the ark that shamed his wife, God does when He comes to finally meet His bride. He sings over her. He rejoices over her. He is utterly content with the church that He loves. He's so delighted in you, dear Christian, that He doesn't hold back. He's like the father of the prodigal. He will lose all of his dignity in the eyes of the watching community. He does not care. He will run and he will throw a feast, giving the best of his possessions to his flagrantly rebellious child. Lovers have to praise. I mean, you cannot help but speak about that which you love and to speak good words. Or, you know, think of anything you genuinely love, you know. Uh, if you are interested in, uh, if you're a wine connoisseur, everyone's going to know it, right? Because you're going to talk about it all the time. If, you, you know, if you're into a particular sport or a particular hobby, you'll talk about it all the time. You cannot help but praise that which you adore. And God loves us so much, according to this text, that He cannot keep silent when He finally comes in His day of visitation and is in the midst of His people. As one author writes, we must banish from our minds forever any thought that that God admits us begrudgingly into his kingdom. As though Christ found a loophole in the law and did some fancy plea bargaining and squeaked us by the judge. No way. God himself, the judge, put Christ forward as our substitutionary sacrifice. And when we trust him, God welcomes us with bells on. He puts a ring on our finger and kills the fatted calf. He throws a party. He shouts a shout that shakes the ends of creation, and he leads in the festal dance. You see, we are called to rejoice in him, and he delights to rejoice over us. With one stark and noticeable difference. Notice, when we are called to rejoice in God, he gives reasons. I will remove. I will take away. I will deal with your enemies. I will save. But when he comes rejoicing over us, you're not going to see any reasons given. (laughs) It's blank. He doesn't say, you know, I rejoice over them because they finally got it right. Uh, Or now, now, you know, they're, they're the people I've wanted them to be. He simply rejoices because he loves us. And he loves us simply because he wanted to. I mean, Zephaniah begins with one of the most extravagant scenes of judgment in all of Scripture, and it ends with one of the most ridiculous displays of God's goodness over His people that all of the Bible shows. It's one of the greatest celebrations in Scripture, and interestingly enough, it's not us celebrating, but it's God celebrating over us. I mean, how do you comprehend that kind of love? I think we all understand a certain amount of performance-based love. You know, he provides well, she's smart, you know, they're they're beautiful, uh, you know, they're fun to be around, uh, you know, high achievers. It makes sense to love those kind of folks. But we don't understand the kind of love that's in this text at all, at least not fully. When in the face of all that you are and all that you've done, 
God doesn't take you back through clenched teeth. He rejoices over you. And this God loves you enough to lose his dignity, not just in rejoicing, but by first putting on human flesh and then dying on a cross. Do you think he's going to be ashamed at his return to sing and dance and rejoice over his people even though you haven't quite made the grade yet? No, instead, with the whole world watching, with all of your sin known and accounted for, he will come singing over you like a shameless lover, unconcerned by who sees, who knows, and unconcerned what they think about the whole affair. Why? Because he loves you. And why does he love you? Because he loves you, according to the text. And that is reason enough for us to rejoice, isn't it? I mean, after all, it's reason enough for him to rejoice. And he calls those with whom he's placed his love, on whom he's placed his love, to simply believe that they're loved in this way, not because of who they are or what they've done, but because God in his goodness set his love upon them and there is nothing they can do to ever separate themselves from that love. Neither height nor depth, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, a God who rejoices over his people and delights in them, not because of what they've done, but simply because he's chosen to love them. And with love that free and grace that grand, he calls us simply to respond with the joy that should come from that sort of acceptance. Let us pray.